haunted house movie of all time in march 2020 this podcast began with that goal in mind now 32 movies four rounds and many shows later we've narrowed down the field to four great films tonight the march madmen podcast announces the result of all of that head-to-head competition and crowns a winner at last <laughs> what a long strange trip it's been To look back at the highs and lows of the season, we'll also hand out some informal awards, our version of the Oscars. We're dubbing it the Tobies in honor of uh, the Haunted House genre's imaginary friends. And we'll celebrate the process. But thank you first, listeners, for taking this ride with us, for giving a shit about what these three guys have to say about horror movies. I can't tell you how much that means to us. Seriously, we really appreciate you. Okay, on with the show. As always, I'm John Evans, and my co-hosts are the illustrious duo of Vikram Wheat, writer of such films as Devil's Pass, and Rich Eckersley, the Emmy-nominated producer. Guys, I I don't want to wait around to express my gratitude to you guys either. Vic, Thank you so much for helping me edit every show we've done, which is truly a Herculean task with these three to four hour recordings. And Rich, without the logo that you designed and the title theme you curated, I don't know what March Mad Men would be, but it sure as hell wouldn't be as fucking cool. So thank you guys for taking time out of your busy lives to do this crazy thing with me. Rich, I know it's a hectic time for you right now, man. So why don't you tell us what you're feeling right now at the end of this long road and then pass the mic to Vic. Uh, relief. <laughs> this has been a, uh, as, as I re- remarked before on, on previous podcasts, this has been a long and sometimes arduous journey, a descent into the, to the mouth of madness to borrow from another genre. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's exciting to be here. It's exciting to be past the phase where we're, where we're really evaluating and I'm uh, looking forward for a chance to just kind of reflect. Indeed. Indeed. Vic, how you doing tonight, buddy? I'm doing well. I want to first show off. We're on video. So you guys uh, listening won't be able to see this, but I am rocking the March Mad Men oh, official yeah. t-shirt. Love it. There you go. So is John. As am I. <laughs> Rich, is, Rich is wearing a salmon pink t-shirt. <laughs> no, no foresight over here. Guys. The obvious choice. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, I I also want to point out that uh, obviously this show is is just filled to the brim with so much bitter sarcasm that when John at the top of the show thanks the listeners, has to stop and say, no, seriously, thank you. (laughs) In case you assume that I'm mocking you, which is possible. (laughs) There is Um, a lot of mockery on this show. Yes. Not not every autopsy Uh, is loving. 
I do share Rich's relief a little bit. Uh, I look forward to, to having a little more time to uh, to watch some some non haunted house horror <laughs> films because this really has. I mean, I think one of the great things about this is that I've spent so many years watching kids movies uh, for the last five years probably this really has gotten me excited to to check out horror films and I've been staying up preposterously late at night till after my wife goes to bed so that I can watch The Wailing which I just finished a, a interesting Korean horror film not quite deserving of the rave reviews I've read about it but I also think, I mean, look, like we set out on this with a goal in mind. Now, of course, the ultimate goal is to figure out what the greatest horror film of all time is. That might be a bit of a moving target given how long it's taken to get through this one. <laughs> but trying to figure out, well, what are the criteria that we're using to judge this? We've all seen a lot of horror films. We've all talked about it. But to really analyze 32 films in one subgenre and come up with what I think will be a really solid answer of what is the greatest haunted house film ever made and to be able to speak at length or, or at least outline for anyone who asked exactly why it is and exactly why it was better than this, that, or the other contender. You know, we've done something. We've learned a lot. I certainly feel like I've learned a ton just about this genre and and what makes it work and what makes it tick and and what can pull it apart that's something like that this feels like an accomplishment we're not at the top of everest you know but we we made it to the top of mount baldy <laughs> mount toby <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely vic i i do feel that if someone really were to go through all of the the rounds and the criteria that we applied, um, I don't think we're going to do that. But you know, if listeners want to go for it and really, you know, isolate each of the hurdles that these four films have surpassed and all the various angles that we've taken on them, you know, their significance historically, what kind of food for thought they provide the viewer, um, their best scenes, their worst scenes, the quality of their endings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like we've really put these movies through the paces and, and spent a lot of hours debating it. So yeah, I think it's a pretty rare thing. I don't know that anybody else has ever done this to the degree of rigorous examination that we put these movies through. Honestly, I would say I'm certainly not aware of it. If any podcast has ever done anything like this and I love horror movie podcasts. Let's just come in and say no one's ever done it. Let's just say that we're doing something that's never been done before. And you know what? If the, if the letters should come in, like, let them come, man. <laughs> yeah, if you guys can introduce me to a podcast I need to be aware of, please do, because I would love to hear it. I mean, the show is called March Mad Men. We are lunatics, and, you know, it's been fun going crazy with you guys. So without also, further ado... Sorry, I want to update my metaphor. Uh, we This isn't Mount Everest, but like Dick Halloran, we have gotten to the Overlook Hotel. Are we getting a quick axe in the chest at this point? <laughs> yes, that's what this show is. This, yes, is the, yes. this is the axe in the chest. <laughs> the, the ironic thing is that this, despite the fact that it took us a year to get here, our pacing is still better than the Halloran storyline <laughs> in China. <laughs> That is true. Oh, you know, Rich took uh, ten minutes to, to seven minutes to, to get in a dig on The Shining, but uh, that's that's fair. That's fair. All right, well, um, guys, I'm going to crack myself a stone 
Buena Buena Visa Salt and Lime Lager. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of that one. That's a that's a good like lawn mowing beer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit light and refreshing. I think I've had it a few times on this show, so that's what I'm drinking. Uh, Rich is in the midst of drinking something. What what do you got there? White wine. My traditional uh, Chardonnay to start the show off. You know, we yep. try to like start start classy and, and messy. Yep, yep. <laughs> You'll be pounding bourbon at the end. And you, uh, Vic? My beloved wife, who worships the ground I walk on and doesn't listen to the podcast, so she'll never know I said that, uh, <laughs> for Valentine's Day, got me a growler from the Draconum Brewery in Newhall of a, a fabulous Belgian strong ale called ABVAF, <laughs> which is pretty great. So I have a, a little bit of that poured into a stein here. Well, what is the ABV on that? I think it's about 11.3. That's a standard Vic beer. Yep, yep. yep. Well, I think we're uh, sufficiently lubricated. Let's get it on. The Tobies. (laughs) (laughs) That was was incredibly dirty, John. (laughs) Oh, yeah, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. All right, well, it didn't take me long to go there, but in any case. (laughs) That's what she said. Sorry. (laughs) The Tobies. Yes. Let's look back at the highs and lows of this tournament. Beginning with the Should Have Made the Tournament Award. This is the movie we missed or dissed. Uh, Many, many candidates. uh, A few are going to be named here. I'm sure there are some great ones that we failed to mention, but I'm going to throw out a few. The Innocence, His House, The Dark and the Wicked, which I haven't seen. I don't know if you guys have, but uh, Relic, Impedigore, Host, and Pulse. Any other write-ins? Do you guys have anything that we haven't officially nominated? I think that covers it off the top of my head. Okay. All right. Well, let's go around the horn. Vic, what's what's your winner from that field? Unfortunately, as I mentioned, you know, we've had we've been so swept up with watching the movies for this this tournament over and over and over again. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to see all of these. Uh, I have seen The Innocence. Um, I did get a chance to see Host. I did see Relic. I haven't seen The Dark and the Wicked, but I did actually develop a project with Brian Bertino, who was a really smart guy. Uh, And I'm not surprised that even though it took him a while to really follow up The Strangers, although I did like his – I think he did a film called Monster, if I recall correctly, that was better than it should have been. So uh, I'm I'm really anxious to check that one out. I'm going to go with Relic. I really enjoyed that. That film, it was more of a creepy slow burn, but it got crazy in ways that I was not anticipating. And after you've watched as many Haunted House movies as we have, for a film to get crazy in ways you're not anticipating is pretty impressive. I thought it had some really powerful symbolism. I mean, it's very much an an art film, but I think in the, the good mold of an art film, like say Devil's Backbone and less say The Babadook. So I was I was impressed with with that. I know you, uh, John. I, I know you weren't uh, quite so much, but that would be my pick for the one that that I think would have gone through a few rounds in this tournament. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I will say that didn't blow me away. I'm not sure I totally gave it its best day in court, but I, I certainly understand your perspective and it's not a movie I would shy away from revisiting and I'd be open to changing my opinion on. Rich, how about you? So I haven't seen 
any of these movies. I've heard that I've heard you guys talk about them and I'm certainly interested in seeing them, but I just have not managed to find the time for more haunted house movies uh, in my <laughs> time. I, I will say that the, you know, a couple that like nagged me throughout the, the season, you know, I know that you guys have strong feelings uh, against the, the Babadook, but I'd say that that's borderline like a haunted house film as has come to mind before. The other one that, that for some reason I always come back to, even though I don't think it deserved to make it anywhere really in the competition was there was a Blumhouse movie called uh, Stephanie that came out a couple of years ago about a, like a little girl who I think was around like the, the age of like eight and the movie like basically centers around her in this house and her parents are gone and, and something some entity is inside the house and, and you have to sort of learn more about what it is and, and what it has to do with her along the way. Pretty low budget and had some some serious flaws, especially in the third act, but was a movie that this stuck in my mind and, and I think kind of falls into the, the genre, maybe more so than something like, oh, I don't know, like 1408. Um, <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll get to 1408 later. <laughs> yes, save it, save, it, save, it for the, uh, save it for that round, buddy. See, you know, that bit, there, there are a few that – nothing that I feel like would have made it anywhere in the competition, but there's definitely a – there's still a handful of pretty solid haunted house movies out there that never even got mentioned, um, especially on the, the smaller like indie side. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're right. And, and this is no, by no means a comprehensive list. I will, as an honorable mention, say His House did impress me. And if you guys are looking for a haunted house movie, uh, this is, it's very different. It's from the refugee perspective. Uh, this couple from Africa come to a really, really shitty house that, that they've been assigned in London, I believe, certainly in England and they they bring some darkness with them and there might be some darkness there already and it just kind of creates a pretty unique take on the on the haunted house film with some solid scares a good plot and twists and turns that I I, I definitely didn't see coming but my winner is host 2020's own very of our times pandemic related film. I'm not going to hazard a guess as to how this movie would have fared in our tournament, having only seen it once, but I really liked it. I I just think that it put together COVID-19, Zoom, and traditional ghost slash demon shenanigans in a really creative, actually pretty fucking scary way. So of the films in the category uh, that we're discussing in, in this should have made the tournament award, I think it's the most relevant right now. And I think it does a good job of carrying the torch for that paranormal activity contingent quite admirably. Yeah, that one really surprised me. Uh, I had heard people talk about it. And so I went into it and the scares are really on point to have done it in the manner that they did it and have it be that frightening was really well done. So, yeah, I, I John, I, I wouldn't argue with that. It's interesting that you guys are mostly mentioning movies that were released, I think, during the course of our recording. And it makes me think about something that, that Vic mentioned early on in this podcast, which is that given that the timeline that we're doing this on, the fact that we are in the quest for the the best horror film of all time, there's entirely the possibility that the best horror film of all time hasn't even been made yet. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I hope you're right. Yeah, maybe it's going to get released like later this year and, and included on a podcast three years from now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I wanted to throw out like some of the older ones, but I mean, theoretically, we had the opportunity to vet and consider some older films. So I wanted to give attention to new movies that that fit the category that we didn't even look at or you know we saw along the way and kind of get a little bit of recency bias in there and also give ourselves the the credit that you know presumably we gave a lot of older movies at, at least some thought and consideration even if they didn't make it i will definitely say if i had it to do over again you know some of those older movies might have made their way in there but i think we had a good process so that's a good way to, to bring our next category to light. Let's discuss Best of the Rest. And this is going to be the award for the hidden gem that was in the tournament, a personal favorite perhaps that didn't make it very far. And our nominees are Our Point slash Ghosts of War, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, and Tale of Two Sisters. I think uh, these votes are probably going to go along party lines because if listeners don't recall, each of us sort of were responsible for nominating our own films. And each of these films has a champion between the three of us. But let's start with you, Rich. Uh, what's your best of the rest? And if you want to write in uh, another film that's not in the um, category, feel free. I'm actually going to I'm going to play against type here. I always feel like ghost stories like deserve to maybe get a little more credit than it than it did, but that's not on this list. And that's okay. I'm actually going to vote for Tale of Two Sisters. Yay! <laughs> I, I now I, now you're going to vote for a Tale of Two Sisters. Yeah, I, I do feel like that movie didn't quite get a, a fair shake. Um, was that the one that was pitted against the Lost to Paranormal Activity three? It was. And the biggest upset of the competition. <laughs> I mean, Certainly one of the more infuriating results for me. I stand by the the vote for Paranormal Activity three, but I'll, I'll also say that it meant an an exit that was probably a little premature for for Tale of Two Sisters. I do have a a, a soft spot for Let's Scare Jessica to Death, but I can also understand why it sputtered out where it did. Tale of Two Sisters seemed like it had more to parse out, more to explore. I remember feeling like the, the filmmaking was very polished and thoughtful, even though I got a little lost on the on the story. So I, I feel like that one would warrant a, a revisit. Glad to hear you say that, Rich. Um, I'll take it from here uh, and then we'll throw it to Vic because, yeah, that's that was my choice, too. It was sort of my hill to die on as, as far as a personal favorite that that died a swift death in in this tournament. I'm not sure why at the time my perception was it left you guys cold because I I really thought this was a revelation when it came out at the beginning of this century, Tale of Two Sisters was. It really impressed me. I know that it has its narrative problems, and even for me it's lost a little bit of juice over those two decades for a variety of reasons, but it's on that list of 20 or so movies this century that have really freaked me out. And I also find it quite poignant and beautiful too. Go figure. Uh, you know, that one I really thought was going to have a larger role to play in our tournament. So glad to hear you say that rich. All right, Vic, go ahead and talk about our point. <laughs> well, worth, worth pointing out that both our point and a tale of two sisters are Korean films. Yes. I was quarantined for a few days during which I, I binged through a Korean horror show called Sweet Home that was awesome and fun. And I watched Train to Busan 2 
Peninsula, which was fun, but no train to Busan. And uh, I, I just, I've really been swimming around in Korean horror for the last couple of weeks. So yeah, look, it's they're they're fabulous filmmakers. And Tale of Two Sisters is again, it's not a bad movie. I, I, you know, we talked about our narrative issues with it and stuff. I feel like, especially with our point, it kept coming up because as we were going through. The films, we kept coming out with films that we liked this and that and that and that, but the ending was too soft. It was too, you know, it, it was too family-friendly. It was too PG-13 or whatever. And that was a movie, that was the one movie I feel like that, that didn't make the cut that, like, that ending was brutal and violent and it had the highest body count of any film in the in the competition, I think. So, yeah, it got it got screwed and you guys suck. <laughs> our point was the biggest like disappointment for me. I was like all about our point. I had very fond memories of seeing it um, probably like 10 or so years ago. I remembered really liking it and it just irritated the shit out of me on this you know, revisit. I have I to say, that, yeah, I agree with I Rich. It was lar- largely because of those like sort of like panicky, like emotional characters that just kept hitting the same like tone over and over and over and over again. There were some nice like set pieces. And, and moments and I remember the, the radio sticks with me and I sort of remember the ending being that very surreal sort of like frozen ghost in the room I can't even exactly remember how it unfolded but but it was novel uh, in, a, in a low budget kind of way but but yeah the character work I couldn't I couldn't get past it well you two are my biggest disappointment and, uh, <laughs> I, I really I really have fond memories of liking both of you a year ago <laughs> Oh, now not so much. Yeah. Now here we are. uh, Yeah. I'll just kind of echo Rich's statement in that, like, I expected to really like watching our point again. And yeah, it did not hold up well. A lot of it had to do with those really broad characterizations and acting choices and sort of a repetitiousness and also kind of a forgettableness of it. Like, it's hard for me to even call our point to vivid life in my in my brain. It just feels like there are now, John, there's a there's a most forgettable entrant coming up. Oh, I know. I I don't I don't want you skipping ahead. There's there's rules, John. We can't can't just talk about whatever we want to talk about. I am a big stickler for those rules as you know <laughs> and i wouldn't be saying this if our point was my my winner for most forgettable movie but i thought about it i thought about it guys because it, it is forgettable i do think there's some great individual moments in it and i think it does stand out as vic you pointed out very uh adeptly there from the other films in our field like there it does more kind of cool traditional horror things that a lot of these movies don't do i just wish i guess it added up to more for me, but uh, solid choice. I'm not going to beat you up for it. Uh, let's move on to the movie that wouldn't die. And in this category, we're looking for the most overrated film in the in the competition. The film that just kept going round after round long after we would have begged it to stop. And our nominees are The Shining, The Orphanage, Paranormal Activity 3, and what lies beneath? This is obviously a no-brainer, and I can't believe either of you are going to vote for anything else. It's what lies beneath. <laughs> this, is, this is shocker. A mystery, a mystery film with a terrible mystery at its heart uh, that plays out very predictably. And uh, aside from uh, a, a very alluring performance by Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, has almost nothing to recommend it except for some incredibly self-conscious camera work 
that just feels like Robert Zemeckis showing off. Ouch. Well, I disagree with that, but uh, Rich, what's uh, what are your feelings? I'm going to agree with Vic. Wow. And, and I will say this is – I actually think that this is a tough list. I mean like I, I can go down all these uh, – I would say the Orphanage and Paranormal 3, to me, ended up exactly where they should have been in the competition. I know Paranormal 3, like, we definitely felt like we'd run out of gas by the time we talked about that, what, a second time or a third time? At least three times, um, Rich. At least three times. A hundred percent. That that one was, was probably the, the closest to, like, overstaying its welcome. But What Lies Beneath was definitely the movie that the more you peeled it apart, the less there was to enjoy. And it does have a couple of key moments that I think might come up later on in the awards that I think are memorable. But for a movie that I, be- I believe was two plus hours, you need more than a couple of like bits um, that, that, that stick in the memory. Like you need a more cohesive film. And, and it, it wasn't that as, as we said at the time, it, it still plays like an old HBO tales from the crypt from the, from the nineties. What's interesting, I'm looking at the bracket, and it made it past exactly one other movie, which was Woman in Black. So it, it, it overstayed its welcome by one round, after which it was summarily crushed by The Shining. Yeah, but The Woman in Black should have won, so that's why it overstayed its welcome. So you, I mean, you, would you guys both say that you, we, we fucked that up, and you would have rather um, done another round with uh, Woman in Black? Uh, no, but that's a question of that's that's pairing, right? So mm, like that yeah. is somewhat incidental paired paired against another movie. Like maybe it wouldn't have gone gone on. I mean, like Woman in Black, I I think was one of our weaker entrants. So we uh, uh, we overseeded it. We we gave uh, what lies beneath a little too much um, standing from the start. Yeah, I'd, I'd say perhaps that's the case. And don't get me wrong. Actually, my, my first rewatch of it, like for coming back to this competition, I, I actually enjoyed it and was carried along by it. But like that was one of the most agonizing, like second viewings um, I had to do. Whereas the orphanage, I feel like kept giving the shining. I actually thought, hey, like if there, you, I'm not going to call the shining over, overrated um, necessarily. And, and it, it has a lot of validity. And I felt like it, it warranted a lot of discussion. So there's no arguments there. Well, the orphanage made it all the way to the evil eight so it it hung around a lot longer than what lies beneath making it out of the first round i'm not gonna stand up for what lies beneath too much but i certainly don't think of it as a bottom feeder and i would have to watch woman in black again but that was a strong candidate for most forgettable film for me as well because it just didn't make a huge impression on me so, and, and there are things I really like about What Lies Beneath. That's all I'll say. I'm going to obviously give this award to The Orphanage. Two of these movies did drive me nuts as they relentlessly advanced, sending films like Tale, Tale of Two Sisters to the wayside. But the depth of my ire is greater with The Orphanage than Paranormal Activity 3, which I still quite like overall. And I don't hate The Orphanage, really. It's just that saccharine ending represents everything I hate about pretentious awards bait, indie filmmaking and manipulative techniques that try to play me like a fiddle and think I can be at their whim to just whipsaw from fear to sadness and mushy emotion just because the score is telling me how to feel. I'm not saying you can't pull it off and I'm totally immune to that kind of shit, but if I catch you failing at it, You've pushed the wrong fucking button, my friends. And that is how 
the ending of the orphanage hits me. So I was so over this movie by the time it finally left. It's a slam dunk for me as the movie that wouldn't die. Okay, well, let's move on to a more positive category, which is most unforgettable entrance. And here we have Haosu, Terrified, Lake Mungo, Oculus, and House. Rich, what's your winner in this category? Most unforgettable entrant. Uh, this one is a is a no brainer for me. I love Terrified. It's it's a one of a kind high house movie in its own. Uh, my love for Lake Mungo goes deep. You are a Mungo head. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Oculus is fascinating. House was one of my mo- house was like the the anti R point. That was a movie that I was not expecting to, to enjoy, and I just like just had a blast watching that again. That was great. But Houseu, sorry, man, like nothing is replacing Houseu. Like no other movie is coming up and like being like the movie that knocks like Houseu off your shelf in terms of batshit crazy, like weirdo visuals, spraying blood, sever heads, hungry, cannibalistic pianos, weird teenage floating sex fantasies, fingers, <laughs> eyeballs, cats. Like, I mean, that yep. movie... Like musical numbers, that movie is truly the one of a kind movie in this in this entire competition. Well, I gotta go next because my winner is Hausu. So it gets the trophy. I, I'm interested to hear Vic's view and what uh, what wins for him. But I have a very fond memory of watching this movie for our show. We were just starting, and I was in the process of moving, so I actually had two apartments at that time, and I was having a really hard time letting go of the place I was leaving in, in Playa del Rey. So I would just spend nights there, sleeping on the floor alone in an empty room with not even a mattress, just this foam pad, and I would watch our Haunted House movies on my laptop. And this movie just really charmed me. It, it, it did, even though I wasn't ever going to totally champion it as a great haunted house film. It's just, as you said, Rich, I mean, you listed a lot of it there. It's just loaded with unforgettable imagery and music, tons of crazy, unique, colorful stuff that no other haunted house movie has going for it. Coincidentally, I think the movie in this field most like Houseu is House <laughs> because they have more in common than any other movie does with them, even if it's only just because they're so weird and singular. They're not really like each other. They're just so their own thing, which none of these other movies, which I think as we've discussed and we may continue to discuss, there's so many tropes and traditions in the haunted house genre. And these movies just go their own bold way. So yeah, for me, it's absolutely house. Yeah. I picked house too. too. Well, it's a unanimous, a unanimous victor for most unforgettable entrant. That's great. Yeah. So that gets the double-plated Toby Award. This is the first nomination and first win for Hausu. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that Hausu would take home some hardware at our awards show? But no, it's it's definitely well earned. All right. Well, that brings us to the the logical follow-up, which would be most forgettable entrant in the tournament. And our nominees there are Woman in Black, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, 1408, Our Point, and Paranormal Activity. Vic, lead us off here. What is your winner 
for the most forgettable entry. A lot of these I had to puzzle over and I really had to think about, think about how I felt about it, you know, maybe go back and look at some of my notes. I did not have to do that for this. It's 1408. The Woman in Black obviously I think has, has if nothing else, an A-plus scare scene in the middle, uh, which we'll get to. Let's Scare Jessica to Death is fucking weird and has crazy, you know, hippie sex vibes coming out of it. I don't know. I really liked I really liked some of that our point I'm not even going to talk about and paranormal activity. Look like paranormal, like my first experience viewing paranormal activity was extremely memorable, even if it hasn't held up. And even if uh, it's not one I want to review again, 1408 is just devastatingly bland. It is. <laughs> it is. If Patrick Wilson was a movie, he would be 1408. Uh, Vic, you um, nominated Paranormal Activity. I, I, I found that kind of su- surprising. I mean, do you want to just give us, like, a briefly why you thought that we needed to consider that one of the most forgettable movies? Well, because aside from that first viewing, I mean, it didn't even make it out of the first round. And you're talking about the movie that launched the found footage genre. Uh, and was, I mean, one of the biggest grossing franchises in history, really, at least in terms of profit. Yeah, but like the woman like standing there motionless while the time code moves and all of these things that came out of that film that are memorable, no, right? No, that's there's no other things. That's the well, thing. Well, okay, yeah. No, I'm with Vic. I mean, I, I think as we as we noted elsewhere, like it's a it's a movie that launched a a thousand copycats, and not to mention sequels obviously and and sort of like spiritual sequels and all of them just took the ideas in that movie and improved upon them well all of them is a strong word many of them took the ideas in that movie and and improved upon them so it wasn't for a a lack of good ideas but it's definitely there's a lack of of solid execution in that film yeah i i just think that it it made a fairly big impression on me and it, it's going to pop up a couple more times for me in the course of this evening. So I definitely, while I don't love the movie, I have a much sort of firmer sense of it in my mind than any of these other ones. But yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, Rich, what's your choice? I literally don't remember 1408. <laughs> <laughs> what better answer could there be? <laughs> I, like I know Samuel L. Jackson was in that scene with an elevator, and then I think it was John Cusack. Maybe it was Johnny Depp. I think I'm getting Secret Window confused. Um, Ooh, what an indictment! <laughs> yeah, the very definition of forgettable. That is fantastic. Well, we have our consecutive repeat here. Another clean sweep. 1408 is also my choice. Guys, this movie, it is the turd in the punch bowl (laughs) in this whole tournament. (laughs) There's something to be said for almost any film in in the field of 32 that we put together. But if I had a do-over, I would replace 1408 with any of like 30 other movies right now off the top of my head. I did only watch it once for for our, our purposes here, which was my second viewing ever. But I don't see another watch having me extol previously unnoticed virtues of this film. I do just want to reiterate, because I know I said this when we talked about it a year ago, 
go read the shorts, the Stephen King short story in his Everything's Eventual collection. It is truly the scariest short story I've ever read. How that translated into this bland turd that I nominated. That's on me, guys. <laughs> I, I don't know. Please check out the story if you're listening. It's, it's well worth your time. I agree with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Now back on the positive side of the spectrum, let's discuss, and this is a big one, kind of in the spirit of the Oscars where they hand out a pretty major trophy relatively early on just to keep people interested. Favorite character slash actor of the entire field. Who could it be? The absolute most beloved charismatic, memorable, whatever criteria you want to bring to it, go for it. But here are our names. James Brolin in The Amityville Horror, Joe Beth Williams in Poltergeist, Holt McElhaney in Below, Pat Healy and Sarah Paxton from The Innkeepers, George C. Scott in The Changeling, Claire Bloom who played Theo in The Haunting, or Janet McTeer from The Woman in Black. A very strong field there. Interesting candidates. Lots of names from across the decades. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start this one. I don't think I've kicked one off yet. My winner is Joe Beth Williams. This is partially a performance, writing, directing, objective quality, etc., and partially just the fact that overall, I have the strongest connection to Joe Beth Williams, Diane Freeling, her character, of any character in this field. She's one of the heroines that I grew up with, as I did see Poltergeist quite young. It's always had a powerful place in my personal pantheon, even if it fell down the rankings over the years, and I think justifiably so. She has this youthful, quirky, sexy energy that you don't always get from a mama bear character in any movie. And yet she does that stuff really well, too. There's a lot of emotion here, but it feels very well grounded in reality. Having Steven Spielberg on your side doesn't hurt when it comes to all that stuff. In any case, I think it's a full spectrum characterization that makes Diane Freeling an indelible character in my eyes. And I absolutely love Joe Beth Williams' performance. My uh, pick for my favorite character uh, slash actor is Holt, uh, Mac McElhaney. That's how is I say it. Yeah. McElhaney from Below, number one, because Below is awesome. <laughs> and number two, I feel like his character, my understanding of an appreciation for his character and his performance was one of the things that really grew through this process and breaking it down with you guys. I really started to appreciate the ways in which he's the driving force of that movie as the, the human antagonist. And really what a great performance. It, what always pops into my head now is the scene when uh, they, they're sort of under attack and Bruce Greenwood freezes and he winds up commanding the submarine while naked because his, his, just gotten out of the shower and it's it's just a really great scene it really sets him up as this really engaging character the kind of person that you can see guys on a submarine following much more so than bruce greenwood which ultimately exposes one of the movie's flaws but he's he's fantastic and i really liked his performance i love that character very solid choice his vacillation between 
being the leader and being this guilt stricken, ultimately, you know, coming apart at the seams guy is, is such a, a compelling journey that, that happens when he, he doesn't really get a ton of screen time to make all of that work. I mean, it's a relatively brief characterization and he, but he just absolutely takes you on that really interesting journey. It's great writing. It's, it's great acting. Love the character. Yeah. He's the one that's like holding it all together, but is also like the, the first to crack. I think in terms of like the, the key characters in, in that story and he navigates it pretty well. Like it's, it's pretty believable um, despite my, my grievances with his, his ultimate death. He's, he's a solid choice. I mean, like there, there's a lot of solid choices in this category. It's a tough delineation to make it favorite character slash actor, because I feel like those two, those are two sort of like mutually exclusive categories where it's like, you could love the character, but, um, but not the actor or, or vice versa. For me, the combination of the two that, that worked the best, honestly, was was James Brolin in the Amityville Horror, and I think that that is probably leaning a, a little more on the character side of things. And part of it is just that his character is a little bit of a time capsule, um, like that is just a, a, a mold of a mold of a masculine uh, character that you that just doesn't quite exist anymore. Like it's kind of a, a relic of an, of an earlier generation. And he gives a very believable and convincing portrait of it. And I think that in a genre that is plagued with these with these toxic uh, paternal figures that are that are sort of like driving their families in, into gra- into the ground, like as they descend into madness, I think he did it better than than anyone else. And actually, the the, the first person that comes to mind as being like the updated version of that is Rory uh, Cochran and. Um, in, uh, Oculus. Oculus, which which kind of feels like the the softened, more modern version of the of that father figure, who's a little more in touch with like the the lives of his kids and and is, is, is oscillating between like that sensitivity and and human connection and and the madness. Whereas Jamie Brolin, I feel like just goes straight for madness, and you know when he's you know in the back like chopping wood with an axe, like it seems like that was something that he was doing before he lost his mind. Um, and it only takes on a, a menacing tone as it, as the you know the, the haunting takes hold of him. He also just like he's he's got that sweaty, hairy '70s thing down. <laughs> like he just really captures the spirit of that movie in mm-hmm. all of its schlocky glory. Totally love it. I think these are three great choices. Yeah, he is such a iconic big characterization you know rory cochran's character is certainly more grounded and believable for our times and it's subtler and not to denigrate him but but brolin is just such a a presence in this movie and and it's it's both from the ridiculous to the sublime and all of it is there sometimes he's absolutely absurd and sometimes he's just really compelling very very strong part of our tournament so Good stuff. All right, guys, are we ready for a refill, bathroom break, anything of that nature? Yeah, let's let's do it. Sold and sold. Okay. Also, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm still not 100 percent convinced that James Brolin was actually possessed by the house. Look, he might have been cold. Okay, <laughs> houses get cold. You got to chop firewood. All right. I think that's that, that's kind of what I'm getting at, Vic. Like that's what made him so compelling. Is that yeah. yeah? At the end, you could be like, there was no ghost. It was like, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, that kid, <laughs> that caterer was an asshole. Okay, he should have taken the fucking check. It's a wedding. God. 
Yeah, yeah. All right. And we're back. Ah, yes. Now I'm going to drink a hazy IPA. This is also Stone. I think this is the Tangerine Express hazy IPA. Oh, yeah. Love that one. Did you get, like, a Stone multi-pack over there? Mm Mm-hmm. Got that upside-down pack from uh, Costco, loaded with good stuff. Nothing to be sad about there. Nope. Wanted to go out with a bang for our show, drink some good stuff. I'm enjoying it. Did you guys get any refills? Anything to report? Nothing of note. I, I refilled my wine. I Depending on uh, how things go, I may move on to I have a stone Excoveza stout that I've been holding on to for a while. So, Very uh, nice. Maybe I'll go for that. If my uh, nominees win. <laughs> if you need to celebrate. All right, yeah. Vic, you? Anything? No, my my growler does not lend itself to an audio medium, so uh, I just I refilled my uh, my ab bath. But I will say I think that I am now actively boycotting hazy IPAs because it's all I can fucking find at the beer stores. Like I can't mm. get over how much it's just taken over beer, and it and it upsets me. Yeah, it is. It's the, trendy. It is, it is the, the yeah. It is the found footage of beer. Kind of is. Good. I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty diehard IPA fan, and I, I, I can appreciate the hazy IPAs, but I, the fact that they are everywhere is like not something I can, I can understand. What I love about IPAs, though, is that there's just such a broad spectrum of tastes within oh, that world. You know, like I love a good solid traditional west coast ipa i love the ones that are fruity in some way i like the hazies i just i love that i'm not bored with ipas after over 10 years of going down this road we should be doing a podcast to find the greatest beer ever made aren't we kind of doing that along the way (laughs) (laughs) in a slightly less organized fashion yes (laughs) but good idea We'll narrow it down easily. It's going to come from Pizza Port, guys. Mm. <laughs> yes. I'm surprised that Rich doesn't have any Pizza Port products for our finale here. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think I have one. Well, the part of the problem is that I, I usually get my Pizza Port from Trader Joe's, and we've, like, sworn off Trader Joe. We're doing, like, delivery only for groceries for, for a while. So Our least favorite beverage is probably non-alcoholic. So who would be our first our least favorite character in the tournament, do you think? Why don't we adjudicate that next? Let's make it official. The nominees are Lena Dunham's Barista in The Innkeepers, Jacinto in The Devil's Backbone, Micah from Paranormal Activity. Wasn't it Mika? Mika? Micah? Uh, I think it was. I think it was Mika. I think really? you're right. Mika. Okay. Mika. Don't want to get letters, John. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Casper Van Dien in The Pact. Julie Harris in The Haunting. And Patrick Wilson in Everything. <laughs> Thank you, Vic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some of those I know we mix up like real names and character names. Some of these less famous actors, we don't need to, you know dragged a poor person's name through the, the mud. We're just talking about the character here. Let's start with who haven't hasn't gone first in a while. Vic, what's your choice? Jacinto is my least favorite character in that he is the most morally repulsive. But obviously it's Patrick Wilson and everything. 
<laughs> I, he's, he's just so bland and uninteresting. I can't tell the difference between him in Insidious or The Conjuring or The Conjuring 2 or fucking Aquaman. His only redeeming performance was in season two of Fargo. Your hatred of Patrick Wilson is well documented, but thank you for pointing out at least that performance. Yes, which uh, yeah. which seems notable. So no love for Watchmen, huh? <laughs> no, he, he's worse in Watchmen than he is in The Conjuring. No, I, I see that. Yeah, I I, I don't hate him with the smoldering fire of a thousand suns the way you do, but, 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 but duly noted. All right, Rich, how about you, man? Weigh in. This is a tough one. So wait, I have a question. Cause you said something at the beginning there when you were saying like, we not associating the character with the actor. So wait, do you want to give me some parameters on what I'm voting on here? Because well, I mean, I, I think it's more like that you have some leeway on this. I mean, we're not, really you if you want to beat up on the actor fine or it maybe it's more that it was the character that was the issue you can take it however you want to take it but it's not necessarily impugning the performer but it could be as I, I, a, in the case of patrick wilson clearly <laughs> look for me i'd say like this is this is a this is a pretty like hairline vote i know that i am i am indebted to place my vote for lena dunham's barista <laughs> Um, in the innkeepers, <laughs> but I will say this much: I have nothing against Lena Dunham, including her performance in the innkeepers. is very consistent with what uh, Lena Dunham does. Um, she delivered exactly what that character was was there to deliver. It's just that what that character was there to deliver was insipid and completely unrelated to the story. <laughs> um, By the way, is a shocking upset brewing here? I think it is. <laughs> but I will say if we're talking about cumulative negative impact on a film, to me, no one did more damage than Casper Van Dien in the past. <laughs> like that movie, I would say that movie was was uh... 10 to 15 percent worse just for his presence. <laughs> but everything from like his his clunky dialogue to his weird like clay shaped face and, <laughs> and just sort of ham fisted emotions <laughs> You know, if, if memory serves me correctly, like his, his, his actual like police officer character does act, does nothing to to really progress the plot forward. Like he's just like he's not doing anything there. He's just he's just detracting value from scenes. <laughs> not to mention the whole ice cream scene or yogurt yeah. or whatever the hell it is. But, but Lena, Lena Dunham, say what you will, at least like she's in and she's out. Like that's right. like how much harm can she do in like a minute and a half is yeah. is the argument. Yeah. yeah. It's only 90 seconds. So you can move on. All right. All right. Yeah. Um, Casper Van Dien has definitely been a popular whipping boy on this podcast. So he, uh, he makes an appearance. Patrick Wilson and Casper Van Dien are, are your guys's choices. Um, I'm, I'm personally, I think I'm coming at this from a slightly more, rational perspective but you know maybe not <laughs> i don't know it's mika from paranormal activity come on also pretty bad and i'm talking about the character here this is where my caveats come from i don't know anything about the actor this guy is such a myopic selfish short-sighted and grandiose asshole that he seems to be on a collision course with death almost from the beginning and we're hoping he hits the gas pedal to hurry up and get there. This character is annoying, stupid, 
and oblivious to danger. He's a Darwin Award winner waiting to happen. Nuff said. Well, I think for all these characters, John, it's it's an it's an insult just to be nominated. You know, true. So true. <laughs> yes, I, I think that they're all winners. The only loser in this category is us. <laughs> and ironically, Lena Dunham, who well, I didn't see that coming. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lena Dunham loses everything. <laughs> Okay, moving on to the controversial category, hottest character, non-imaginary friend. Our candidates are Lauren Bittner, Julie, the mom in Paranormal Activity 3, James Brolin, and Margot Kidder from the Amityville Horror, Nargis Rashide, the mom in Under the Shadow, Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford from What Lies Beneath, Miki Jinbo, Kung Fu in Haosu, Joe Beth Williams from Poltergeist, Mary Staven, Tanya the Neighbor in House, Katie Featherstone. <laughs> I know Mary Staven, Tanya the Neighbor in House. <laughs> I had to IMDb that one. Katie Featherston from Paranormal Activity, Sarah Paxton of The Innkeepers. That gal in Session 9. Just kidding, there aren't any. Katie Lotz and Casper Van Dien from The Pact. Clay-faced Casper Van Dien. Clay-faced. You see, Katie, Katie Lotz had a chance, but then 15% less hot. <laughs> oh, I love the clay-faced Casper Van Dien. That's amazing. And finally, Brenton Thwaites and Karen Gillan from Oculus. A lot of hot characters here, hot actors, good-looking folks, a lot of charisma, a lot of sex appeal. All right, let's uh, let's suss this out. Rich, who wins the Toby for you? Oof, man, this is a tough category. I know that this is a this is a very polarizing category. Um, <laughs> a lot of texts were exchanged about this a lot, category. A lot of texts were were, were exchanged. We we all agree that that. We're not here to to objectify any any people, but as as actors, these are people that are that are on display, and just like people in real life, they have they have physical value as well as emotional weight. Yep. But we're not here to talk about emotions. No, um, we're just talking about that good old fashioned je ne sais quoi. Now, I I have a question. When we're talking about these pairings, now I, I think it's really interesting that we broke this down into into so many pairings because I think it says something about the fact that a lot of these movies manage to wrap up like two personalities. Like, mm-hmm. so there's something to be said for like the the chemistry that's generated between a pair of actors in terms of like generating that electricity that that that, that you want when it comes to viewership. Something where it, you yeah. you can't take your eyes off of them. It takes two to tango. It does take two to tango. I keep switching the, the answer in my head. Do you want us to come back to you? I want to go with my instinct, and I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Joe Beth Williams. Nice. Kind of for the same reasons that you were mentioning when you were talking about her for, for favorite character. Like, she's just fun. She's hot, but, like, she also, like, she's got a family. Like, she has a, she has a fairly, like, complex life. But she's also like seems like a, a fun personality. I think it's very interesting that you neglected to put Craig T. Nelson. Um, you know, I thought about it, 
I, I really did think about it. You know, I can't really ex- explain why I didn't, other than the fact that he's deliberately playing a little schlubby. Yeah, sh- schlubby was the word that came came yeah. to mind. Like, mm-hmm. Definitely, like he's he's paying a guy. He's playing a guy who's a little like past his prime, and right. like that is like part of the part of the character. And exactly, and it's, it's fine to like own that. But but I I will also say that that in a sense in this film, like uh, Joe Beth Williams at this stage in his life, like seems like she's almost like a little out of his league. So it's a good thing that he locked that down early. Yeah, um, yeah, he's not aging particularly gracefully. I guess is the is is the one of his character qualities. Yeah, but mm. but but I agree. Her her spirit lives on in that in that movie. And I'm actually like not a huge fan of the weird underwear ceiling crawling um, scene in that film. Like that mm. doesn't really do it for me. But when I think of like the the pot smoking scene um, in that movie, like I'd say yes. that's what I what I remember of her. Like, I want to go hang out with that chick. One hundred percent agree. Vic, um, when I mean, I know we all know you're you're going to pick Casper Van Dien, but but give us the explanation. Just Casper Van Dien, not that other the, <laughs> that, that Katie Lots. I also want to point out, I like that we had to specify non-imaginary friend because otherwise we'd all obviously go for Jody in the weird orange eyes. Yes, from uh, Amity, oh, was, Amityville. I was, I was going to um, who who was the ghost in Legend of Hell House? That was Hell House. That was that was Edward the Ghost. Yeah, <laughs> the sexiest ghost. Yeah, that, that was what I was thinking of when I was thinking non-imaginary friends. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, we might talk about that scene again soon enough. Honestly, Rich, I'm having the same thing where I feel like I kind of keep flipping back and forth. My honorable mention goes to Brendan Thwaites and Karen Gillan, who I think, even though they don't have chemistry between them necessarily, both just exceptionally attractive people. Yeah, they're the most... Uh, attractive, I think, especially in terms of modern actors. Yeah, definitely. But no, I, I keep going back and forth between Brolin and Kidder because Kidder, especially, I was I was really taken with. Yeah. Excuse me, in Amityville and, and Brolin, who I've started to emulate in my day to day life. <laughs> you could do worse, Vic. <laughs> Well, I, I thought about double nominating or double awarding Joe Beth Williams here, but, uh, you know, I, I want to spread around the love. And so I am going with, and I don't know if this is a surprise to, to you guys, it's far from a landslide, but I've always had a thing for buxom brunettes and the creatively named Katie in Paranormal Activity is freaking adorable. Katie Featherston's performance has a little bit of Zoe Deschanel to it. While in the film, she's seldom sexy per se. She has this kind of wholesome charm and voluptuous beauty that doesn't read as too Hollywood. And I did put Casper Van Dien in this category because say what you want about the guy. And I know Vic will. I, I definitely think he brings some sex appeal to the pact. He's a good looking clay faced man. So. I didn't call him clay faced. OK, that came from Rich. <laughs> True. I mean, I, I know you guys maybe have um, your different bones to pick with him, but I, I'm giving him like sort of a. A, a, a tip of the cap here, but I'm going with John, Katie Featherston. <laughs> I just, I just don't know what you see in him, John. He, he's got a charm to him. I, I don't know. I mean, he's got the stubble going, and he, he knows how to eat some frozen yogurt, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll upvote the the respectable decision uh, that you made there, John. I think 
Katie for this one is, is certainly like kind of a, I was going to say touchstone, but it sounds like I'm reaching for something that I'm not. Certainly of like a, of that type of horror, I do feel like she made an impression uh, when that movie came out. And I, I know that she didn't, she didn't go on to like a whole lot of success uh, after that. But I agree that like her, her, her physical presence has stuck with me over the years. Also in, in Paranormal Activity 2, in which she also appears, and, and The River. Um, which was also that that uh, M Night Shyamalan produced, oh, and so, uh, it was Oren Pelly, and Oren Pelly, yeah, yeah. But like, I I think that she kind of has more chops than she was 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 given credit for. But but I'm with you. She sort of has a, a rough around the edges, um, you know, diamond in the rough um, kind of quality. I I kind of like that she doesn't put up with with Mika's shit that much in that movie either. Yeah. And she had to act she had to act against that guy. So she really had less support and less to work with probably than anybody else. I know what I'm doing, like giving the the tandem awards here, you know, to them sort of back to back. The least favorite character and the hottest character are in the same movie. And yeah, I think that definitely is a credit to to Katie. And I, I think I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I distinctly remember hearing and this was at a time when we went to a lot of movies at Universal CityWalk because Vic lived in in that air, area. Was that she was a waitress at I want to say Saddle Ranch at at yeah, CityWalk yeah. when the movie premiered. Like you could actually go before the movie, get a couple of drinks from her at the bar, and then go see Paranormal Activity at the movie theater. And I don't know, I kind of love that just kind of shows what a maybe not rags to riches um, because, you know, her career trajectory didn't go parabolic or anything. But I just I I like the sort of humanization of that, that she came from very modest beginnings and was a part of a, a hugely successful movie. Yeah, I like that. I mean, this is a compliment to both Katie and Saddle Ranch that her level of, of hotness is 100% on the level of what I associate with, like, Saddle Ranch Waitress. <laughs> Which you mean as a compliment. I mean that as a compliment mm-hmm. on, yes. on, on both uh, in Hollywood, but not part of Hollywood. I also believe that on the way from Saddle Ranch to the movie theater, you could pass the actor who played Mika who would just let you punch him for $5. <laughs> Do you know how many pieces of currency I would have given that man? Like, I would have had to go to the ATM, go to the 7-Eleven, get cash, turn it into fives, and I just would have kept lining up and handing them (laughs) those bills over and over and over again. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. Real guy who we're not naming because we're talking shit about your character. All the love in the world, man. That's not true, John. You don't know his name. Well, I mean, I I, I went out of my way not to to list it because it's not about who the guy guy actually is yeah, no, I yeah. i'm sorry we wouldn't we wouldn't really punch you guy of course not of course not yeah. all right well another fun category is coming right up and it is the funniest moment in any of these haunted house films and we have some very strong contenders for this title Okay, we'll let that be the teaser for part two of the March Mad Men season one finale. Tune in next time for more hardware being handed out, the ravings of three Mad Men about this subgenre of horror, and of course, the big announcement. What is the greatest haunted house film ever made? Next time, you will find out. 
at least what we think is the greatest haunted house film ever made. Until then, adios. Adios.